Blog Talk Radio. Oh, if 
But, Brother Africa, let me just be very, very clear in terms of one of the real challenges that we're confronted with, you know, in the society. And that's a question in terms of the um, the uh, scapegoating of the poor in the society. You know, often you, know, you hear people talk about the fact that, you know, the problems that the poor are uh, inflicted uh, uh, with is the direct result of the poor's inadequacy or poor people's inadequacy. Not understanding that the system in place, you know, that facilitates these inadequacies, uh, we tend to blame the poor for everything. And in the, in the capitalist class is particularly adept in terms of uh, creating a scenario that suggests that any problems, you know, poor, uh, poor people have in this society or poverty generally, the only reason that it exists is because, you know, because of essentially there's something wrong with the people who find themselves impoverished. So it's very interesting. So anyway, so I thought I wrote this right this little bit about in terms of some of the stuff that goes on behind the scene in terms of, you know, the scapegoating of poor people in the, in the prevalence of poverty in the society and why it exists in the first place. But check this out, Brother Africa. Now, understanding for the poor has long been evident in the capitalist framework. Jokes are often used to disparage the poor. <clears throat> One joke in particular says, if poor people want to escape poverty, they should pick better lotto numbers. Humor aside, the most serious underpinning of contempt for the poor lies in an economic framework that sees their poor lives as expendable. In fact, a kind of economic growth also conceals the plant, the plant obsolescence of poor people's lives. Economic growth is often statistically manipulated by government institutions utilizing methods of growth employing statistical analysis manufactured to formulate the best possible outcomes for selling corporate and or government financial instruments like bonds and other securities. Ironically, the focus on the sales of goods and services does not incorporate the material interests of the poor. Instead, <clears throat> statistical tabulation serves the interests of wealth by establishing prices of commodities which can be purchased and money and or margins where the costs to acquire financial assets are subsidized by brokers using the public funds to finance private business deals for the wealthy. The poor, in effect, pays for the sordid business dealing in terms of higher prices for manufacturing products, higher taxes, or unemployment. Now, systematically, inequality of capitalism is embedded in its DNA. The level of deception employed to conceal the economic shenanigans from the citizens are very intricate. Utilizing faulty economic bar barometers like current accounts or price-earning ratios, the strategy is to conceal the state of the economy, thereby creating the illusion <coughs> economic policy is sound. The reality is, manipulating statistics creates a perception capitalism's ability to sustain endless growth is limitless. The reality is, capitalism's short-term pursuit of profits negates sustained economic growth. Factoring in inflation to establish the most efficient prices of commodities and changes in price fluctuations not only compounds a business cycle, but inevitably fosters increasing inequality. Of course, maximizing profits is not. <clears throat> of course, maximizing profits is not an exact science in the, in the formulation of reaching supply-demand equilibrium to to reach the best possible prices. Does that take into consideration declining wages or the level level of unemployment? Now, the only consistency in deregulation of the economy is the attainment of profit. How these profits are obtained are not confined to moral parameters. Typically, deceiving the poor has been success, a successful strategy to transfer wealth from the poor into the coffers of the wealthy. During the 2008 subprime debacle, GDP, <coughs> gross domestic product, stats were greatly padded 
to facilitate the transfer of wealth. Utilizing a trench in which stocks, bonds, and investments were bundled together to create one financial instrument, of course, <laughs> of which no agency solely owned the financial instrument. Since no one solely, o- solely owned the financial instrument, the dividends paid out to investors and created, created billion, millionaires and billionaires. This was possible because the trench was structured to increase mortgages rates monthly. Manipulation of the subprime stocks was quite lucrative. More importantly, the perception market insiders created, in particular brokers, market, uh, brokers, bankers, investors, sought to foment growth excel tremendously. The perception created was one of exuberance, which meant the stock markets were seen as booming, which was precisely the intent of the, de- of the deception. The scam was so effective, the stock market operated at levels that were unprecedented. In fact, the NASDAQ index traded 442 billion shares, while the New York Stock Exchange and other firms saw sales in excess of $1.52 trillion over the course of a quarter or three months. By late 2008-2009, the euphoria of the stock market receded. According to Credit Suisse Trading, average daily trading had slowed considerably. Just $6.5 billion amount among NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange and its affiliates indicated the Organized Stealth Act had concluded a new way to swindling the poor had to be contemplated. Sadly, only three people were indicted for the scam. Lee Mozilla of Countrywide was indicted, but Department of Justice did not pursue charges. <clears throat> and given all this, keep in mind, the poor often used to deflect the ravages of capitalism. GDP stats highlighting the needs of the economy never seemed to encapsulate the urgency of health care, quality education, economic opportunity, inequality, equality, or ecological disaster. Oddly enough, these intangible variables are vital to the well-being of the populace, particularly the poor. Other intangibles include financial asset assistance to the poor in a marketplace economy and access to employment. In the case of financial assistance for an indigent single parent and children, assistance, assistance is at a sub, subsistent level. States typically initiate a search for the other parent to pursue child support payments. Upon identifying the parent and garnishing their wages, the amount of money collected by the state exceeds the amount the garnishment requires. The balance is kept by the state. By 2020, the amount collected by the state exceeded $1.7 billion. None of that money was provided to indigent families. Instead, the extortion by states was treated as <laughs> Excuse me. The distortion by states treated the scam as a windfall. Assistance for the poor children turned out not to be not to be priority at all. Now, the indifference to the lives of poor children is irresponsible, but the negligence afforded families under capitalism is horrific. Families' dependence on employment is essential to ensure the viability of the family unit. This rudimentary concern is compromised by a system that values wealth for the capitalists at all costs. Given this is a market-based economy, it's focused on short-term profit projections, precludes any possibility the needs for employment will be met. This type of system, while callous, is counterintuitive. Given the huge profits corporations have accrued following the reopening of the economy, the means to employ more people exists, given corporate earnings, and the only barrier standing in the way is ideological. Some refer to this ideology as, excuse me, as productivity or the impact of hiring a single person, single employee impact on profits. Since profits have priority over employment, for business managers is a no-brainer. Employment must be sacrificed. 
reality is, in seeking employment for the masses, the public sector, gover- public sector or the government must play a larger role to make employment opportunities possible. Examples abound. One such example is the Humphrey Hawkins Bill of 1978. The bill afforded the government the authority to reduce unemployment by creating temporary government jobs. The onus on government to create jobs was prioritized because under capitalism, the private sector's only obligation is to the investors and the stakeholders to deliver profits to ensure employment. This revelation is particularly instructive because it reveals the public policy choices that facilitates poverty in the, in the society. Little wonder the scapegoating of the poor as lazy, unmotivated, enjoy so much prominence among the wealthy. The fear that impoverished one day will come to the conclusion their lives could be, be different must surely keep the capitalists up late at night. Now, unfortunately, the intensity of scapegoating the poor continues to become acute. In 1996, under President Clinton's Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconcil- Reconciliation Act, elevated contempt for the poor to new levels. The bill will reform public assistance, casting the poor as parasites while building more prisons. The program would distribute money to states in the form of block grants. The idea was to reduce revenue sharing with the states to force states to reduce businesses for the impoverished families or terminate the family's eligibility. Primary focus on program was to disqualify indigent families from assistance. This was, this was, <coughs> was imposed by injecting an additional caveat that stipulated clients with, with, with toddlers have three years to find employment. In theory, this proposal sounds rational, but on close inspection, a couple of issues are, were apparent. One, searching for employment when the system was designed to foster unemployment makes obtaining a job impossible, particularly in lieu of high unemployment rates, which are by design. Secondly, under a capitalist framework, full employment negates the possibility of all who want a job to get one. Full employment will only accommodate employees to the extent Productivity or excessive profits are not compromised, which is clearly a structural issue. The bottom line is the tension between capitalism and democracy is palpable. Democracy, in theory, seeks <coughs> the most good for the most numbers. Capitalism seeks the most good for the less numbers. Implicit in capitalism is a disregard for those lacking capital. Capital is attained not by egalitarian, egalitarian principles or the greatest good for the greatest number of people, but, but, it's, but it's attained by the capture of the political apparatus that informs economic decisions or accumulation of wealth. The most recent example that comes to mind is the economic policies espoused in the U.K. by the superficial black man, Chancellor Kwesi Kwarteng. This description, of course, was, was uh, attributed to him by um, uh, M.P. Rupert Hack. His desire to punish 100,000 to 125,000 part-time employees with benefit cuts, barring pursuit of more hours, appears to be his, his attempt to compel workers to work in the fields at low wages, jobs normally taken by immigrants. Simultaneously, he is contemplating tax cuts for corporations and the wealthy. During the time when the UK, UK economy is in decline, partly resort of Russian sanctions and military expenditures and declining value of the currency, it is ironic this chance of six ways to financially enrich the wealthy at the expense of the majority. Historically, Thatcherism has imposed hardship on the masses. The repeat of Thatcher-like policies will not re- re- revitalize the economy. On the contrary, such policies will only exacerbate inequality. But again, perhaps that is the goal. And I close with that, Brother Africa. 
So how can you set them up for? You brought it, and we're going to now make our transition to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism, because that is the ultimate solution to the problems uh, we're facing as a result of our oppression. Thank you, Brother Anthony. And for Brother Anthony, we're going to make our transition to Brother Moses. You can welcome him to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Moses. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. We don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. I bear witness. This. I, I, I bear witness that women hold up half the sky, and that that. Uh, Equal Rights Amendment, yes. I support the Equal Rights Amendment, ERA, yes. And so, you know, we're trying to unite the many to defeat the few. We we should have tribal rules. We should be expanding and adding on, uniting, not splitting, and um, build a movement that is egalitarian and justice and bound. Uh, thank you all for allowing me to be on the show, Brother Africa. Thank you. It's a pleasure, Brother Moses, like always. Same back at you. Next, we'd like to forget our dear beloved sister, Eleanor. We'd like to welcome you as well to Africa on the Move. Good evening, Brother Africa, fellow panelists, and to our listening audience here in the United States and abroad. Thank you so much for having me. On this evening's show, I'm an artist, a curator, an educator, and an environmentalist. And uh, we have to save Mother Earth and love Mother Earth if our children are to have a future. Thank you so much for having me this evening. Like always, Sister Eleanor, it's an honor always to have you. Yeah, listen, audience, and to our panelists, what we're going to do, we're going to do a quick station break, uh, rupture culture break, and following that break, we're going to play a footage on who control all our money. Our theme today is Let's Talk, the based on open discussion, open topic. We're going to play this footage, and when we come back, we're going to have a discussion from that perspective, and Everything else is on the table. This is Brother Africa on Africa on the Moon. (laughs) 
We'd like to welcome you back to Africa to Move. We're going to make a, a adjustment before we go to our special segment today. I mean, being Let's Talk, we're going to play the segment on who controls all the money. But before we go to that segment, like always, you know we want to hear what's going on in your world community. And we're going to start out with our political panelists and analysts to give them a few minutes to talk to us. Brother Haki, what's going on in your world and the community? Well, some uh, some some good news, Brother Africa. You know, uh, there's a, a brother, a professor, uh, P.L.O. Lumumba, uh, recently uh, made a statement, and he said, he was talking about the fact, you know, he he raised the question, who bewitched us, and he was getting at given the oppression of African of African people of the continent of Africa. Why is it that so so little awareness in terms of you know the exploitation that's taking place and you know and uh, on the continent and why are so many African leaders willing to participate or acquiesce in their own oppression, uh, their own marginalization of the African continent? So he raised the question: Who bewitched us? Well, you know I you know just over the, over the weekend you know I came across this article and I was very happy to read this article, but essentially. It was a, uh, a a brother out of a uh, young brother out of uh, Somalia, uh, who was who was currently living in the in the, in, in the suburbs of Boston. In any event, uh, this brother did something. It's, it's not particularly extraordinary because there are increasingly more and more Africans are going back to Africa. They come to the realization there's something fundamentally wrong with this American society, and it's not the panacea they thought it was. But this, but this young brother, Boya Farrow, in terms of his analysis, I mean, at least his, 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 the things that he espoused in terms of his reasoning behind returning to Africa, I think was very, very interesting. But in any event, Brother Africa, listen to this. Now, Boya Farrow, ex, ex-immigrant from Somalia, returned to Somalia after confronting the systematic racism in U.S. society. Farrow had believed that America is a land of milk and honey. Conditioned to believe in America... <laughs> in America, in America, people were treated as individuals where individual talents will be recognized and rewarded in terms of employment and compensation. He came to understand the structural nature of racism in American society. Interestingly, 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 after his family fled Somalia in 1989, he, not, he acknowledged he was brainwashed not only to believe the U.S. was paradise. He was conditioned to believe Africans born in the U.S. are thugs or drug dealers. This perception of federal reveal, no doubt, was a result of media presentation of Africans born in America and the lack of historical context on African experiences in the U.S. and the role U.S. institutions play in impacting social conditions of African people born here. What Farrell did not disclose was the, the same political U.S. institutions that shaped the behavior of Africans born in the U.S., Similar political institutions in Somalia and Africa generally are products of Western states and issues that shape the beliefs and perceptions of Africans born on the continent. In this regard, the dissemination of miseducation presented to Africans born on the continent is not solely the machinations of Western propaganda, but erroneous information spread by some Africans born on the continent to disparage Africans born in the U.S. This propensity reflects the level of internalized self-hatred that seeks to establish Self-worth by projecting onto others, others, Af- other Africans as fundamentally lacking in values, motivations, or intelligence. The same is true of some Africans born in America who seek to denigrate Africans born on the continent. 
under the guise African suffering on the continent is a function of African inferiority, as opposed to class interest that makes democratization of Africa possible. Farrell's candle makes possible the critique of African challenge throughout the world. By acknowledging a romanticized view of the U.S., this puts into motion a central critique of pan-Africanism and why African people must fight for a unified, strong Africa that could eradicate the indignity of confronting an imperialist world order for any humanity. So I'm glad that this, this brother came out and, and actually acknowledged <clears throat> you know, this is an issue in terms of, you know, um, in terms of people, you know, adequately understanding the struggle in America. Oftentimes people believe that in fact that in America, you know, the only limitations the one should pose upon yourself. And they don't understand the systematic barriers that are in place to create the certain results. In other words, they don't understand the nature of socialization as it exists in American society. So this young brother came here and he got a chance to see for himself <clears throat> you know, by experiencing this, the the the, uh, the uh, institutional barriers that that gets in the way in terms of one achieving its fullest potential based upon skin color in American society. So now he's going he's going back to Somalia. He's a writer. So now that he understands the systematic barriers that impact Africans born in America in terms of their ability, in terms of self actualize in American society, he can impart that knowledge to his brothers and sisters in their own language and make sure that they understand fully. The struggle of African people in America is not because African people enjoy the enjoy struggling on a day-to-day basis, but in, in reality, they have to struggle in terms of survival in the society because without that survival, they clearly the system is, is, is weaponized to destroy African lives. So African people in America have no other recourse but to struggle against that system. So it's important that, it's important that the Africans on the continent understand that reality, just as it's important that we in America understand that the same historical barriers or same institutions that, that, that negatively impact Africans in the United States also exist on the African continent, which also has an impact on the way that people behave, the way that people see things or, or people's beliefs. So we've got to understand this political reality that we're confronted with, and as African people, we have to understand we've got a collective responsibility to fight for each other's interests. And I think one of, one of the chief interests among African people has to be the personification of, of pan-Africanism, and despite this bullshit about some, you know, about being too, being too uh, nationalistic, uh, the bottom line is that when we talk about in terms of the nature of global injustices that inflict African people, there's no question about it that the injustices inflicted upon the African continent are not only uh, 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 ex- extensive, uh, but certainly we can argue they're, 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 um, they're, they're, rather, they're, they're rather rare in the sense that when you start talking about every, every Western country on the planet has some relationship in terms of, in terms of you know, Africa. And so given that reality, then we have to understand that we, as, as, as an African people, then we have no other recourse but to fight and fight hard in terms of overcoming or, 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 liquid, or getting rid of such a system which, 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 which marginalizes us, you know, at, at, a, at, a, at a basic core. Uh, so clearly I just enjoy the fact that this brother, uh, you know, uh, acknowledged, you know, some of the issues are he's very candid in terms of, you know, his understanding in terms of, you know, American society. And being able to dis- dispel that notion that in fact America is a, some kind of panacea, some kind of great place, and now he uh, he's back in back in Somalia. Now he understands that you got a you got a great country. All you have to do is you need a political organization to build that country. Ultimately, form those relationships with other African states to create a unified Africa. And I'm telling you, it be and that would be the paradise on on this planet. And so I'm thankful for the fact that this brother actually talked about. 
you know, uh, some of the things that normally uh, people don't want to talk about. So I'm pleased that he did that, and I close with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. Uh, for at this moment, we're gonna make a transition to Brother Anthony, and we want to know, Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world in the community? Talk to us, Brother Anthony. Sure. Uh, let's see what's going on in my world and community. Uh, first, I want to start off by uh, uh, pointing out something that happened near me in New Jersey. An African was shot while leading a burger by the police, shot and killed. And uh, this was a relative, this took place in a relatively poor neighborhood in Camden, New Jersey. And uh, so even uh, after what happened in the George Floyd situation, uh, police brutality still takes place among African and other poor oppressed people inside the U.S. Uh, And uh, it's not going to stop until we end capitalism. Another uh, item I want to uh, address is there was a coup d'etat in Burkina Faso recently. Uh, Let's see, I don't have the full details of it, but uh, the the stabilization of Africa continues and will continue until Africa achieves pan-Africanism. And that is the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. So, uh, you know, uh, you know, until we achieve that, the things that divide us are going to keep occurring and uh, are going to intensify. So we must get organized in order to bring an end to this uh, situation. Thank you, Brother Anthony. And the key word is let's get organized, get organized, let's get organized. And who's going to help us get organized? I know someone very special. Have Brother Moses, the man with the master plan, come talk to us, Brother Moses. What's going on in your world and the community? Let's get a nice. Brother Moses. Well, the first thing I should say is that uh, on the 21st of October, there's a fundraiser planned uh, for the Cuban people and uh, celebrating or uh, recognizing rather the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And uh, that there will be more information given out about that in the coming weeks before. Um, um, meanwhile, I don't know the the Trump campaign and the Biden has come to his senses and uh, decriminalizing marijuana. That's that's the big big news. Uh, to jail sentences and uh, some kind of. Uh, form of reparation in, in the sense of uh, expunging records and et cetera. 
should go on. Uh, um, there's a there's a lot going on. Uh, uh, anyway, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Apologize for a technical problem just now, but we'd like to re-emphasize the issue that Brother Moses just raised about a upcoming fundraiser by the D.C. Metro Coalition in solidarity with the Cuban Revolution. They'll be giving a fundraiser recognizing the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis, a fundraising event commemorating 13 historic days, October the 16th to 29th, 1962. That event was on Friday, October the 21st, from 7 to 10 p.m. The location is 4221, and the street is, I spell out for you, A-R-G-Y-L-E, Turns, Northwest, Washington, D.C. If you'd like to know more information, you can call 202-503. 9465, or just email them at DC Metro Coalition for Cuba at gmail.com. So, support the event and talk about the DC Metro Coalition. We bring on Sister Eleanor, who also works with that particular coalition, and we'd like to know what's going on in her world and the community. Sister Eleanor, welcome. Thank you, Brother Africa. Um, one of the things that will be happening on the 21st is uh, there'll be a a film screening of Maestra, and uh, there'll also be special guests uh, of the Cuban Cuban Embassy, and there'll be lots of wonderful Afro-Cuban music, in addition to delicious Cuban food and beverages. And once again, the phone number is 202-503-9465. And as Brother Africa said, the email address is DC Metro Coalition for Cuba at gmail.com. And um, it, it will be a fundraiser for the coalition, and it uh, it really does. Uh, it is con- it's intended to commemorate the uh, uh, horrible circumstances and the missile crisis, October sixteenth to twenty, October twenty ninth, in nineteen sixty two. And uh, it was uh, it was an incredible time in in in, in world history. There was no uh, social media as we know it now, so you'll get to see black and white photographs of Khrushchev and and Castro, and how far the world has come and how much has changed. And our main goal is to end the blockade against Cuba. But just allow the Cuban people, the nation of Cuba, to have world, to have access to the world economy and 
and the nations of the world. Thank All you, right. Brother Thank Africa. You. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. And what we're going to do right now, since we are talking about Cuba and events taking place in D.C., just use this time right now to bring Brother Haki back from the African Awareness Association and just remind our listening audience, audience, friends, and supporters, and people who have an interest of going to Cuba that for this new year, 2023, from January 23rd to 30th, there'll be a funeral ride to Cuba being organized by the African Awareness Association. African Move is encouraging its supporters, friends, is to come collaborate with the African Awareness Association. Join the morning freedom ride. And Brother Haki, uh, can you just talk a little bit about why it's important to go to Cuba and um, what the people need to do? Brother Haki, we're going to bring you right back in and just kick a little bit of the ballistics on this freedom ride to Cuba under the banner of the African Wedding Association for January 23rd to 30th. Brother Haki, talk to us. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's, 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 you know, the bottom line is that, you know, when, when we look at the situation as it currently unravels, you know, in American society, uh, inevitably we have to ask ourselves the question in terms of what is the role of, of humanity? Is, uh, is humanity something that's important, or in the context of capitalism, is humanity simply something that's esoteric? Uh, Cuba takes the position that when you talk about humanity, humanity, humanity is something that is extremely important. And it has to be reflected in your day-to-day you know, operations of the state. Uh, so when you talk about the building of institutions, humanity in mind, Cuba is an excellent example in terms of institutions which foments or, 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 or reinforces and certainly uh, endorses of the humane aspect of, of, human, of, of human existence. And it's something, it's something to behold because when you look at terms of the way the people behave in Cuba, uh, it's very, very clear that they have some understanding of the world that perhaps a lot of us in, in, in America don't have. And a lot of that, 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 that the, 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 what they personify is actually a reflection in terms of institutions that govern their lives. For instance, if in America, when we talk about the kind of institutions that promote selfishness, greed, avarice, uh, uh, hostility, uh, when we look at those kind of institutions, and you look at it in terms of the kind of people, so when you look at in terms of the kind of Anger, apathy, uh, um, distrust, uh, humiliation, uh, degradation, all the stuff that goes on in, in American society. When you look at the people in terms of interaction with one another, sort of manifest those kind of values, lack of values, sort of manifest themselves in terms of the way people behave. And so often people don't understand the, the, the notion in terms of social, you know, um, socialization in terms of how these institutions impact your behavior, how you see the world, how you see yourself, how you see other people. Uh, so Cuba has un- Cuba the understanding that you know that socialization is a key point or key piece in terms of bringing in a, bringing into existence a humane society is very much reflected in everything that Cubans do and it's something to behold. So we encourage people to go to Cuba to see for themselves firsthand. And more importantly, I think it's important that people you know you know if, from, from the U.S. go to Cuba and talk to people firsthand in terms of their perception in terms of what's going on in the world because I think it's important. You know that you know that we we understand the role of propaganda in U.S. society, and so therefore they propagate all kinds of fallacies. But it's it's great to go to Cuba actually to talk to the people yourself, and and don't hold back. Don't hold back. I mean, if you have some, I mean, very pointed, very candid questions to ask, then ask them. 
Because the great thing about Cuba is that when you get the level of education and people awareness in terms of the international arena, the people are very astute in terms of understanding, you know, what goes on around the world. Uh, so the education level is very, very high in Cuba. And so, therefore, they, they, there's nothing that you can say to them, nothing that you can ask them that they, are not, that they don't have a response to. And don't think for one second that Cubans are not free to express how they feel. Of course, if, you, if they agree with you, they agree with you. If they disagree with you, they disagree with you. But, they, are, but, but they, they don't have a fear in terms of, like the media would tell you, of expressing what they really feel. So we encourage people to go to Cuba, see for themselves firsthand in terms of, you know, uh, you know, how Cuban society is organized and what benefits can we translate in American society in terms of creating communities which sort of reflect, you know, uh, those kind of values that, uh, that you see once you go to a place like Cuba. So we encourage people to go firsthand and see for themselves. And I think it's important just in terms of your own personal growth. You know, or one of the things is, you know, I think this whole question in terms of, in terms of when you talk about racism, man, Clearly, Cuba has come from a society that was extremely racist. I mean, you know, Baptist and prior to Baptist regime, I mean, Cuba was a very racist place. And you look at Cuba today in terms of the incidents of racism, you know, it's, it's simply, you just don't see it. I have yet to see in Cuba incidents of racism or even express or express racism. So people, so this notion in terms of understanding that we're just human beings is very much uh, endemic in terms of the way, the way Cubans uh, go about their lives. So clearly, we can learn we can learn some things from Cuba. So we encourage people to go to Cuba, see for themselves firsthand what's going on, ask those pointed questions in terms of the concerns that you you have, and then you know just observe. So you know for that reason, you know uh, we we encourage people to go to Cuba uh, firsthand and see for themselves. So you heard Brother Haki and African Wellness Association come and join that freedom ride. You can contact them at. The email African Awareness Association 2 at gmail.com. That's African Awareness Association 2 at gmail.com. It's a one week through on the 23rd to 30th of January. It's an excellent time to bring in a new year and start out with a new and great beginning. Now go into Cuba and see for yourself. So at this point in time, what we're going to do on Africa on the Moon. Um, we're going to make a transition to begin to talk about a thing, let's talk. But before we talk about let's talk, which basically is an open topic, but we want to talk a little bit about this next clipping we're going to share with you as it relates to the CIA fake news in the 90s. You know, one of the things you must learn, about the, learn from the enemy is that once they have done something that they have been successful in, they will never give that up until otherwise. So let's listen to this clipping and we'll come back. Let's have a talk. You can join us by dialing in at 323-679-0841. This is Brother Africa, and we are on the move. We all know that you can't believe everything you read, but at the same time, most journalists do try their level best to get the facts straight. It requires checking and wherever possible, a first-hand account of what's happening. But an eyewitness account is not always possible, particularly in nasty wars on the other side of the world. And so reporters sometimes have to rely on other people's accounts. The story then becomes as good as its source, and sources sometimes lie. The U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, deals in information and misinformation. Tonight we see how the CIA has been able to plant news reports that aren't just inaccurate, but totally fabricated.
Angola, a former Portuguese colony in southwest Africa that's been at war since the mid-70s. Its left-wing government, supported by Cuban soldiers, fights a continual battle against guerrillas backed by South Africa. Ten years ago, the Soviets helped send guns and troops here, and the United States responded with support for the guerrillas. According to newspapers at the time, that's how the Angolan War started. But did it? John Stockwell, wearing the cross, worked for the CIA for 12 years. As a colonel, his last assignment was to run the U.S. campaign in Angola. The basic theme was to make it look like a, a Russian-Cuban aggression in Angola. And so any kind of story that you could write and get into the media anywhere that, that pushed that line, you did. Uh, one third of my staff in this task force was covert action, was propagandist, whose professional career jobs was making up stories and finding ways to get them into the press. In 1975, the resource-rich African country was being fought over by three factions. Agostino Neto led the left-wing MPLA, which eventually became the government. Jonas Savimbi, an anti-Marxist, led UNITA, which was openly supported by South Africa. And another anti-communist force was led by Holden Roberto, who had been paid by the CIA for 14 years and was now to receive major U.S. support. The CIA had just closed down three long-term paramilitary operations in Southeast Asia. Uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. They had over a thousand paramilitary case officers come flocking back to Washington. They didn't have desks for everybody, much less jobs, and morale was rock bottom low. They wanted a covert action. They wanted a paramilitary encounter. The rationale uh, was that uh, uh, the Soviet Union was trying to take advantage of the United States' weakness right after the, the Vietnam War, that Angola was getting its independence and they were trying to snap it up, and that Henry Kissinger decided that we could not be weak and we wouldn't let them do it. Our own files disproved that. We moved into Angola first and Russians were responding to us. But before the CIA could move, the U.S. National Security Council had to be sold and Stockwell helped with the briefing. The first briefings on Angola literally went, gentlemen, this is a map of Africa. Here is Angola. And then they went on with a chart to explain there are three liberation movements in Angola. One of them is headed by Holden Roberto. He's the good guy. We've worked with him for years, and they use literally good guy. Then the, the MPLA is headed by this drunken, psychotic Marxist poet, Augustino Neto, he's the bad guy. And they used exactly the so to make sure that people understood. <laughs> Once the National Security Council had given its blessing, Stockwell and the CIA cranked up their propaganda machine. And newspapers around the world became unwitting accomplices in the campaign. From the CIA's headquarters, Stockwell sent his propagandists to Britain, Portugal, Zambia, and Zaire. Far from the battlefield in Angola, they wrote news releases for the two Western-backed factions, and these were fed into the ticker tapes of the Western media. Stockwell's CIA men also wined and dined Western journalists and gave them personal briefings. His man in Zambia was particularly enthusiastic. He ran a story that the city of Malangi had been captured by the UNITA forces, and in doing so, it captured 20 Russian advisors. 
And uh, they thought this would show that Russians were running the thing in Angola. There weren't Russian advisors. It wasn't a factor, and we knew that. But the story did well. The Toronto Star, like many newspapers, picked it up from Reuters News Agency. It was also carried in the Montreal Gazette and in the Vancouver Sun. I, I remember reporting that very clearly. Fred Berglund was the Reuters reporter who filed the story from Zambia. But, um, years later, I discovered that um, a little CIA um, misinformation expert had sat in the um, U.S. Embassy in Lusaka and had composed that communique, and it bore absolutely no relationship at all to truth. You've got to remember, at that stage, during a war, um, you're working under incredible pressure. I, I worked for four months without a day off for 16 hours a day. And all that was wanted was a flow of information. I mean, I, I'd done the same in the Middle East War. I, I was based in Damascus. And in the first week of the war in Damascus, I, I wiped out the Israeli Air Force three times over with official statements. Reuters, with its headquarters here on London's Fleet Street, is one of the world's largest news agencies. Its international bureaus provide many newspapers with their only source of news from far parts of the globe. Well, I mean, with hindsight, um, some of the official statements from the side I was reporting, and I stress from the side I was reporting, but also from the side that people in, um, in Luanda with the MPLA were reporting, clearly most of those, rep those statements were completely false. The CIA man in Zambia soon came up with an even better story. He had some Cuban soldiers uh, raping some young Angolan girls. Uh, then there was a battle, and he had uh, that Cuban unit cut off and captured. And then he had the Cuban women, the victims, identifying their rapists. And then there was a trial, and they were convicted. And then he had them executed by a firing squad of the women who had supposedly been violated with photographs of, of, of young African women with uh, weapons shooting down these Cubans. Uh, there had never been a rape. There had never been the military action. The Cubans had never been captured. Uh, it was all fiction. Fiction, maybe. But it showed up on the front page of papers like the Toronto Star. The Toronto Globe and Mail also ran the story, and its headline attributed it to Angolan guerrillas. Many other Canadian newspapers in cities like Winnipeg, Montreal, and Halifax picked up the story. Basically, and to put it very crudely, you can um, publish any old crap you like, and it will get um, get a um, newspaper room. But despite the best efforts of the CIA, the armies it supported didn't stand much of a chance once Cuban soldiers showed up. The force led by the man who'd been on the CIA payroll, Holden Roberto, was wiped out. And UNITA and the South Africans made a hasty retreat. Back in Washington, Congress didn't want another Vietnam and voted against spending any more money in Angola. More recently, the CIA has found work for its skilled writers in Central America, particularly in the campaign against the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. First, the arms flow story. According to President Reagan, Nicaragua supplied guns to left-wing guerrillas in neighboring El Salvador. The Sandinista dictatorship of Nicaragua, with full Cuban-Soviet bloc support, not only persecutes its people, the church, and denies a free press, 
but arms and provides bases for communist terrorists attacking neighboring states. David McMichael was the CIA's senior analyst on Nicaragua. He was asked to write a report on the arms flow, but when he looked at the evidence, it didn't support Reagan's claims. The, the argument that we're dealing with here is, do these arms come through or from Nicaragua with the complicity of the Nicaraguan government? And the evidence does not sustain that. In 1981, the CIA asked McMichael for a report on the Nicaraguan press, opposition, and church. And uh, my, my conclusion was that, uh, you know, there was a significant space for these, uh, for these groups to operate, uh, but that they were in no, in no danger of suppression or disappearance. Compared to any other Central American country, Nicaragua has by far the liveliest uh, opposition press and media. Over two-thirds, for example, of the 40-odd radio stations in the country are, are still privately owned and generally speak their mind. When McMichael spoke his mind, the CIA didn't like it. He was fired. But after four years of fighting, now the Nicaraguan government has suspended many freedoms. In the world's newsrooms, the CIA efforts at disinformation continue to turn up. In 1982, reporters were shown photographs of what the CIA said were Soviet bases in Nicaragua, identifiable by their Soviet-styled obstacle courses, training areas, and guns. I used to laugh and say, look at that Soviet-style baseball diamond over there, you know. Um, you know, this is, this is almost foolish, really, you know, to talk about this. First of all, they're not Soviet military bases. That's, that's the whole point. The second is that a barracks is a barracks. You know, an obstacle course is an obstacle course. Soviet freighter Bakuriani pulled into the Nicaraguan port of Corinto today, carrying a mystery cargo which could lead to a showdown between the Sandinista... Just over a year ago, on the day President Reagan was re-elected, his administration came up with another Nicaragua story. This one had to do with Soviet MiG fighters, which Washington said had been shipped to Nicaragua in some mysterious crates detected by satellite surveillance. The result was more headlines. But as the story developed, doubts began to emerge. Ronald Reagan had a warning today for Nicaragua and for the Soviet Union. Reagan said the U.S. still cannot confirm reports that Nicaragua has received a shipment of MiG-21 jets. But he said if the reports turn out to be true, the U.S. would take a very dim view. The Nicaraguan government has denied that crates taken off a Soviet freighter today contain any warplanes. And it's accused Reagan of trying to whip up an invasion fever. By week's end, U.S. officials were saying there weren't any MiGs after all. It's the usual thing. The charge makes the headlines. The retraction makes the inside pages. Eight or ten days later, it's revealed, well, MiGs weren't on the way, but that's no longer a headline. So what one is left with is the overall impression from the screaming headlines of the week earlier that Nicaragua continues to represent this enormous danger to the security of the United States. This nation of three million impoverished souls, half of whom are under the age of 15, you know. Well, I would, I, I would say people are very silly if they believe everything that newspapers tell them. And I think pro probably anybody who buys a newspaper needs a course on how to read newspapers. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move from YouTube. You will listen to a clipping of the CIA 
and fake news in the 1980s. You know, sometimes we must be reminded of the fact that um, the enemy doesn't last some of the time. It lasts all the time. Present situation, what's going on today, as you watch the news and the news agencies, you see this particular drama playing over and over and over again. And you ask yourself, are the people really that silly to fall for that okie doke? For example, do you really believe the news coverage as relates between the confrontation between the Soviet, between Russia and Ukraine, between the U.S. versus Venezuela, Cuba, Syria, and the rest of the world, between France and its so-called former colonies in West Africa. Bob Marley said you can fool some people summertime, but you can't fool them all the time. Let's talk. Let's talk about this narrative of can we believe what we see today in the various medium? medium. Start off with you, Brother Haki, where you address that question. Uh, do people believe it? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, Brother Africa, uh, a lot of people do believe what they hear on the media, uh, un- unfortunately. Uh, that doesn't discount the fact that some people choose to believe it, even though they suspect what they're hearing is fictitious. But they do so simply because it serves a political interest, and so therefore they're willing to go along with the, the deception. Uh, but generally, I think that people do pretty much believe what they what they hear on television. And, and, and matter of fact, it's uh, you know uh, one of the reasons why they're very uh, selective in terms of who becomes you know associated with organizations. Uh, it becomes extremely important that they possess certain kind of characteristics, uh, even certain kind of looks, in terms of selling you know propaganda. Uh, it, it's ironic. It's not based upon one's uh, one's ability to deliver the news. It's based upon one's appeal to the masses of people. And unfortunately, uh, it, it's, it's an old game, but nonetheless, it's one that it's one that works. You know, doing this clip, brother Africa. You know, one of the things. Um, you know, uh, John Stockwell. You know, he's one of the um, uh, venerable uh, former CIA agents, and he's very, very. Uh, he's very, very circumspect, and he's very, very honest. In terms of what transpired, uh, you know, uh, in terms of uh, in terms of U.S. propaganda, uh, one of the things that he lived in Africa for a long period of time, and uh, you know, he even spoke the language, and he was he was he was he was struck by the fact that you know during the time you know he was living, living in Africa, no one ever put no one ever treated him differently because because of the color of his skin, and after after 17 years in the CIA, it dawned on him that you know this 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 policy that he's that he's this, this this agency that he's a part of, or specifically to, to to form him policy for the purpose of the the uh, the uh, marginalization and oppression of of a people, of people who treated him very very kindly. He came to the realization that what he was doing was simply uh, simply inhumane, and, and that from that point on, you know, he started to search, well, not a search, but he started actually to to articulate what was really going on, what was the truth was, and uh, you know, against great. A threat to his life, you know, he, he he did what was principled, and certainly you got to take your head off to John Stockwell. But just in terms of, you know, earlier when you talked about the fact that uh, if if the enemy uh, use a tactic and it works, they continue to do it. You're absolutely correct, uh, Brother Africa. 
And when you talk about disinformation as pertains to America, well, a couple of most recent disinformation is this. How often it has immediately recently been running this notion that Russia planned to use nukes? I know, I'm sure everybody heard that one. Russia's planning to use nukes. They're depending on in Ukraine. They're going to use nukes. You know, you know, all that. You know, and and it seems to me, and then you read other information, which which, which is very very clear. You know, uh, you know that uh, this guy Putin is no fool. He realized that once it gets to that point, if you use nuclear weaponry, it's all over for the for the planet. He understands that he's much more level-headed than than, than, than the Western press gives him credit for. But that is the point. The point is to make you think that Putin is some kind of madman and he's going to just start, start using nukes against Ukrainians. When in reality, he don't need nukes because he's beating he's whipping Ukraine without nukes. So why would he utilize nukes anyway? So it's very, very interesting propaganda. So it, it it sort of serves its purpose in terms of projecting, you know, Russia somehow as 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 the evil empire. And so clearly, that's the whole intent in terms of the propaganda. Also, one of the one of the uh, disinformation they've been talking about, they've been talking about how Ukraine is winning the war. That's very, very interesting. If Ukraine is winning the war, then certainly you got to explain to me why you would proliferate or actually increase the amount of weaponry, the amount of funds that you're giving to the you sending to Ukraine at the expense of the U.S. economy. So, if they're winning the war, then certainly there would be no need in terms of additional weaponry, additional more funds. The only time you would impose additional weaponry, additional funds. Is when you're not winning. <laughs> so, but anyway, but 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 it serves a narrative which says that you know you, you know you know Russia is beatable. If the Ukrainians can beat them, then we know Americans can beat them, and that's the whole point. Because at some point down the line, the U.S. desperately want to take on Russia and China because the position is that they understand U.S. imperialism is on its way out. And in order for them to revive and order to sustain U.S. imperialism, they have to take on Russia and China. And they're creating the case right now for the masses of people to support, you know, military intervention in, in China or Russia, and that's whole, the whole the whole point in terms of the disinformation. Also, brother Africa, you know, one of the things, and thirdly, you know, what is interesting is that when we talk about disinformation, you know, we've been talking about how the U.S. imposing sanctions on Russia. U.S. imposing sanctions on Russia. Well, it comes. It, it, it turns out that these 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 so-called sanctions on Russia are few and far between. As a matter of fact, according to recent reports, and this is this is a, this, this is already the State Department, of uh, the, uh, the the U.S. is still acquiring all kinds of commodities from Russia, particularly mineral fuels, uh, precious metals, iron, oil, and steel, uh, fertilizers, uh, inorganic chemicals. They're still receiving from Russia. So the sanction that they keep telling people that they're perpetuating is, is somewhat is somewhat disingenuous. But then again, it, send, it serves a purpose. And so we got to understand, so when we listen to this stuff in terms of, you know, uh, this news that's been disseminated in the society, then we have to understand clearly, you know, that everything you hear is, 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 is with the intent to make you think a certain way. And I, it's no way you can get all people to come to the realization that they have to under, have to listen to news with a critical ear. That's just not going to happen because people biases, uh, you know, uh, people prejudices make it, you know makes it almost impossible for them to hear anything that they don't they don't essentially agree with. So so as long as this propaganda uh, uh, appears to their biases, then they're going to listen to it. So there's no way you're going to, you're going to do, uh, you're going to encourage people not to listen to it critically because of that kind because of that bias. And finally, brother Africa, let me let me just say this. And one of the things we're talking about why uh, the news media is so uh, uh, gullible when it comes to being dissemination of propaganda by the U.S. government is or the U.S. intelligence is very very clear. It's all about the dollars and cents, you know. Because recently, according to most recent article, 
between 2008 and 2018, uh, newspapers have been losing been losing a tremendous amount of money. But to, between two, 2008 and 2018, the revenues for newspapers were roughly 37, 39, 30, I'm sorry, 38 billion dollars. Currently, that amount is like 14 billion dollars. So there's a tremendous amount of loss in terms of revenues. Of course, the, the, the newspapers, like all, like all, you know, like all businesses, want to make money. So the U.S. government comes to them and says, the intelligence community comes to them and says, listen, I want you to plant these stories, and we are, we are, we're about advertising time in your paper. Of course they're going to take it, and they're going to do essentially what the, what the, what the, what the, what the intelligence tells them to live. They give them an article, and they print it verbatim. So that's clear. And finally, Brother Africa, you know, you know, back in 1977, you know, Washington Post reporter, former Washington Post reporter, Carl Bernstein, did an article in the Rolling Stone, and he talked about the cooperation between U.S. intelligence and media officials. And he talked about the fact at that time, that was prior to 1980. He talked, this is back in 77. He talked about the fact that 400 journalists carried out assignments for the CIA. 400 journalists. And so, so in, in, in 2000, we started talking about, or, or 2000 in, in, in 2018, 2017, and we started talking, 2016, excuse me, and we started talking about media being embedded, <laughs> you know, in, in places like, in places like, in places like um, Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, and places like that. And we talk about the CIA, um, we talk about media personnel being embedded, you know, among the troops. Then clearly their role their role is to disseminate propaganda. Their role is not there to be objective. The reason why they have them with them is to show them certain things into in the plant certain ideas in their mind and to get them to 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 replicate uh, those felonious erroneous ideas uh, because it serves the purpose of the U.S. propaganda. So clearly this this so this is go this this question in terms of the media's willingness uh, to be agents you know for intelligence to, to foment propaganda goes way back. It just it hasn't started. And so you're absolutely correct. When you say that if they if they, if they do it before and it works, they continue to do it. Absolutely. And that's precisely what's going on today in the year twenty twenty two. Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Anthony, talk to you, Brother Anthony, the media. Are you buying the hype that you're hearing today? What do you think about this? Let's talk about it. Your perspective, Brother Anthony. I'm Mike Show, Brother Anthony. Can you hear me, Brother Anthony? Okay, we can try to get Brother Anthony back until we get him back. Let's go to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, are you buying the hype that you're hearing on the radio and TV? No, and I just made a mistake myself with some hype. There's no um, Khrushchev and Castro at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis were not uh, in agreement over such a thing, but I'm not really qualified to speak on that issue. Cuba just wanted to have its independence and to live as an independent nation and to have good relationships with all of his neighbors around the world. But um, as for the hype that you hear, especially in the last few months, Brother Africa, you can see that it's just pure propaganda, pure propaganda. 
we we haven't heard a factual bit of news uh, in months concerning uh, what's going on, as Brother Haki said, uh, with the Russians politically and economically or with the Ukrainians. And the Ukrainians are being uh, supplied weapons and training by the U.S. and Great Britain and other Euro nations. So uh, this isn't a Ukrainian uh, um, um, war. It seems to be uh, a European war or a U.S. proxy war. But we don't know because we don't get the truth. And it's just a bunch of propaganda. You know, it's uh, nowhere for us to really have access to what's going on. Let me see if we can get Brother Anthony back in here. Brother Anthony, are you there? Can you hear me, Brother Anthony? I think we had lost Brother Anthony for a while, but we will continue. You know, when we talk about this question, let's talk. You know, one of the things I thought were interesting the other day was this, this whole notion or whole idea that when you look at the, the media, when you look at the media and you look at the reporters and the stories that they are creating, they will have you believe, for example, that Cuba, for example, is a terrorist country and they're on a terrorist list. Knowing full well, Cuba has never committed one act, one terroristic act against anybody or anyone. They never had a history and totally against their character and their demeanor to, to engage in such an act. So my question to your panelists is, just this whole notion of for them to outright print a story such as Cuba is on a terrorist because they participate in terrorism, what's that said about the American population when agencies don't have to do no kind of concrete research or investigation before they write a story that the whole world knows is nothing but a damn lie? Your response, Brother Haki. Yeah, yeah, Brother Africa. You know, the, uh, I, I got to say, it's, 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 you got to laugh at it because the hypocrisy is astounding. Uh, one of the things, when you talk about terrorism, I mean, who, who commit more terrorism than the U.S.? I mean, so so when, when, they, when they apply that tag, uh, that terrorism tag to a, to a, to a state, uh, it's, it, it, normally, it's, it's done because those states represent a, a, um, a represents a um, existential threat uh, to the American way of doing things. In other words, when you talk about states like Cuba, uh, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and you talk about these these states, they are trying to implement uh, socialist policies. They want to take care of their people. They want to provide the resources of the nation to benefit and benefit to all of the people. And so the concern of the U.S. is that if they, if they, if they succeed at that, and of course socialism is very, very successful in states that actually practice it, 
they realize that it's going to put pressure on, on government officials to bring about more socialism in America. And so that's an existential, existential threat. And so therefore they label them terrorists to justify the undermining their economy uh, and or undermining politically and socially. It's hypocrisy. But clearly, you know, one of the things is that I, I think you're right. I think the implication is that the the perception of the masses of people in America is not very, very high you know, by government officials. I mean, when you can simply, when you can unilaterally espouse, you know, uh, theories or ideas which are totally inane and just, just crazy, when you, can, when you can present these ideas to the populace and think that they're going to accept it, you only can come to that conclusion if you conclude on some level that the masses of people in America are not very, very bright anyway. And so, therefore, you can tell them anything, and they will swallow it. And it's, it's, and it's ironic. Uh, and, and when you talk about in terms of the kind of uh, the propensity for terrorism in the United States, the terrorism the U.S. has practiced didn't, didn't just start five years ago, ten years ago. It, it's been going on from, from the very establishment when the, when the nation was first established. The terrorism first committed against the, the indigenous people in terms of wiping out indigenous people. You know, it didn't stop. Then it started the Africans, you know what I mean? So then they, they went around the world committing terrorism around the world. So there's no in terms of terrorism. Anybody who understands anything about history, even just the smallest bit about history, fans, when the U.S. calls anybody a terrorist, then you better understand something, you know, that if, 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 if they call the other nations a very peaceful terrorist, then what does that make America? You know, so at some point, you know, people got to understand the hypocrisy and, 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 and respond to it. Uh, we have to have movements in terms of addressing this hypocrisy, but clearly, you know, it's, it's, it's insane. And you're right. No one has to present any credible information in terms of categorizing any condition as a terrorist. All the government has to do is say, okay, the State Department says you're a terrorist, and that's the end of the case. You know, and you're absolutely correct. Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua never did anything in terms of anybody, you know, they never did anything to the United States. They don't even talk badly about the United States, you know. Uh, so you know, it, it was you know, and, but it, it speaks also to the power the power dynamics. Uh, one of the things in terms of labeling these smaller nations as terrorists, U.S. can bully them around. Well, they also would like to. They were all. They had a big discussion around calling uh, 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 characterizing Cuba. I mean, not Cuba, Russia as a terrorist state. Even they even talked about calling China, characterizing China as a state-sponsored terrorism. You know why they didn't do it? Because both of those states are large states; they're very powerful states. The U.S. can't impose their will on them. So if you call, if you characterize them as state-sponsored terrorism, they're in a position to undermine the U.S. economy. So the U.S. leave them alone. The smaller states and I don't have that kind of power. They don't have those kind of economies. They don't have the kind of population. So they can't do that. So the U.S. is free to impose their will on smaller nations. As much as they would like to impose the same, the same characterization on Russia and China, they can't, simply because those economies are too great, too big, the U.S. is dependent, too greatly dependent on those economies, uh, and so therefore they don't. So people got to understand the name of the game, but clearly, Brother Africa, the kind of hypocrisy to label somebody a state-sponsored terrorism, America, call it somebody a state-sponsored terrorist, you know, you've got to be, I'm telling you, you got to be high on some serious drugs to formulate such out of your mouth. Uh, clearly, Brother Africa, you know, it's, it's all, it's a real, it's a massive irony, and I'll close it there. 
you know, since Eleanor, I guess it's been, what, about a week, a week and a half ago? The world lost one of the biggest terrorists that the world has ever known. And that's the terrorists who reigned the empire of England, Queen Elizabeth II. When you listen to the media, when you listen to the media, they want you to believe that this was the best human being in the world. And she did nothing wrong when it comes to the subjugation and oppression of African people and other oppressed people around the world for many, many years as institution for centuries. So um, how do you view this whole narrative for how they presented the history of Queen Elizabeth II and the empire that she reigned? So fabulous when it comes to terrorizing the world. Sister Eleanor. I think um, considering the crises the world is in right now, discussing Queen Elizabeth II is just another bamboozle to distract people. Right now, the main focus, I think, should be on accurate news and describing the history of Poland as it stands in the 20th century, the history of Russia and its people and Russian minorities. And to take a look at narrow nationalism, European narrow nationalism, we saw it in the 20th century uh, uh, for uh, years, but we saw an accurate uh, description of narrow nationalism with Tito's Yugoslavia when it uh, divided itself into three nations, Croatia, um, uh, Serbia, and then there was a uh, Islamic sect that they called, the world called terrorists, and they were was starving these people and had them literally in concentration camps. So right now, I see the thing, and uh, this Russian thing is being very similar. We're not getting any real truth or facts. We don't know what uh, uh, Poland is doing. We know that They've cut a deal to get to be a part of NATO and to get all these weapons from the U.S. And what I see right now is the greatest threat um, that we've seen in nearly a century is the NATO expansion, Brother Africa, and the uh, giving and exchange of these super uh weapons with these uh, Eastern European countries. This is uh, a big mistake, and war is never the answer. And uh, handling things with, with military and the willingness of Poland to handle things with military and to seek out so many 
super bombers a year from the U.S. for the next 10 years for supplying the Ukraine with weapons uh, is frightening and it's outrageous and uh, it's putting the world in danger. So Queen Elizabeth uh, got a lot of, the woman died and uh, there's a lot of division around her, you know, whether or not they changed it from the British Empire to the United Kingdom or, you know, the new name of Great Britain. And that's, that is definitely a topic worthy of discussion. Uh, but right now I see the most dangerous thing happening for um, Africa and the world is this, this expansion of NATO and this misinformation being given out about the uh, uh, Ukrainians and Russia, as if the Ukraine is some nation. Is it a nation that we never heard of, Brother Africa, until Russia um, has a military conflict and suddenly is a nation called the Ukraine and we all around the world are worried about the liberation of the Ukraine. When, when, when was it established? You know, these are the kind of things I see that are important. And I'm not even able to answer those questions myself. And the media is not answering them for the public. A very simple question. When was the Ukraine established? What is its relationship to Russia? Why is it the only nation that was a part of the former Soviet Union that is now uh, somehow at war and being supplied weapons by the United States, Great Britain, and other Western countries to fight the Russians. Why are there these sanctions against Russia wanting to turn the, the prices of Russian gas, Russian oil, and other Russian uh, metals and, and resources to commodity prices? This is what's been done to Africa, and now they're expanding it and wanting to do it to Russia. Something's wrong with that picture. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. This is Africa on the move. Brother Africa, when it's seat, we're going to take the heat. As we define it, we're going to stand behind it. Today's theme tonight, we just have a really open discussion. Let's talk. Talk about whatever. And what we want to do when we come back, I ask our um, political analysts and journalists to respond to this situation that I, that I just encountered. And I find it interesting because we know that every act has a purpose. Now, the situation I can raise with my panelists tonight is that I was told, and I just experienced that, 
loose luggage, luggage that you use to travel with, they no longer have any kind of locks. You, you know, they are not making no kind of locks, no kind of safety lock where you can secure your baggage. I've asked the question, why is that? What kind of danger does that present travel with luggage where anyone can go in and out of your luggage? I want you all to think about that, and when you come back, let's have this talk. This is Africa on the Moon. Living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be. To last through my journey, yeah. Last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care for soon. There while our lives won't be in danger And when the light is clear Oh, how beautiful I will be To know that I've been here And made it through my journey Yeah, and made it through my journey Pellerino, a bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay, the clay that holds stones together is African, and each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces white saints became 
of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. When the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be. And made it through my journey, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. 
I'm here to take money, even fake hair. So desperate is what I'm left with. For the record, you affected. Who you elected is so skeptic, so full of shit. I can't accept it. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. I reside on the west side. I murder with my third eye. Nigga so fly, get a bird's eye. I make him scream bloody murder. Let's meet at the White House. Run in and turn the lights out. Man, they treat it like a trap house. These motherfuckers never take the trash out. They just cash out and mash out. Nigga, take your drugs and pass out. Niggas love to go that fast route. I see you when your black ass get out. Homie, you play too much. Why these devils, they doing way too much. Most of them won't say too much. Why they steady planning? God knows what. That's why I roll with the real ones. Real ones, trying to reach millions. Real ones, trying to make billions. Real ones, dressed like civilians. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. I understand we have some technical difficulties. Again, we're sorry about that. There are certain things we can't control. But anyway, before that break, we're just back. And um, what we're going to do right now, we're going to talk about this incident, about the luggage. The luggage is no longer being secure. You can no longer secure the luggage. It has no security. And what kind of um, consequences they may have on the traveler? How will that jeopardize your safety and everything? So we'd like to hear y'all respond to why they now making new luggage with no security measure to it. How can they affect your travel? And what things you might can be accused of? Getting the fact that someone said they found in your luggage and it was your luggage. So let's have a talk. At this point in time, we're going to bring back Brother Haki in terms of the luggage situation. What is that all about? No longer you have security and being able to lock up your luggage. And how does it jeopardize one who may be traveling in terms of their safety? Yeah. Well, you know, Brother, you know, brother Africa, you know, I, I'm, not really, I'm not really surprised at um, these so-called countermeasures they employ in terms of the fight against so-called terrorism. Uh, one of the things is that, you know, when, when they create a, a scenario, or certainly create a narrative which says that, you know, everybody's a potential terrorist, then, of course, then you can, you can expect that your civil rights violations, uh, your civil rights will be violated. Uh, that's just a given. And, of course, whenever, uh, you know, these rules go into effect, you know, they do it behind the scenes. So they tell these, these businesses, you know, who manufacture uh, luggage, you know, you're not to install locks on his luggage. And they comply. Uh, unfortunately, you know, a lot of this information doesn't get disseminated to the public in terms of what's going on. It's done behind the scene. But clearly, I think it has, I think it serves the interests of, of the state. Uh, I don't think they can take the concern about uh, the ramifications for the populace at large. I don't think they're concerned about that. Uh, clearly, you know, uh, when you have a situation where you can't lock your luggage up and then you got to go into an airport, 
then certainly anyone is capable of going into it and removing anything or putting anything in it. And so clearly uh, that is problematic. But I but I think, again, you know, it's part and parcel in terms of this whole push in terms of uh, uh, securing the state against, quote-unquote, quote uh, terrorism. So I just think it's just one of those things, Brother Africa, I think it's just inevitable, uh, you know, until uh, this imperialistic system comes to an end and, and uh, hu- more humane kinds of uh, institutions takes its place. I think this kind of... Um, uh, scrutiny, for lack of a better term, uh, by government officials is just par for the course. I don't think anything's going to change in terms of in, in terms of the strategies employed by those positions of power. Uh, clearly, you know, uh, you got increasingly fewer and fewer people have access to more and more power. With all that power comes uh, the ability to do any and everything that you want to do. And so, the civil rights uh, uh, or those concerns, as far as those positions of power are concerned. Those things are not issues, and so, so clearly, you know, I just anticipate, you know, that those kind of things, as time goes on, become commonplace. Uh, but as I said before, uh, one of the things is for, you know, this this imperialist system is on its way out, and but until it falls, uh, the bottom line is that these kinds of uh, these kind of measures are going to be taken by those pieces of power, uh, you know, simply because, you know, uh, by create, by them creating the narrative, everybody's a potential terrorist. Uh, they justify in their minds the the subjugation of uh, of one's civil rights, human or civil rights. So that's my view on that, Brother Africa. Mr. Aldor, man, when you travel, you have another obstacle you have to be concerned with. This whole issue of unsecured mm-hmm. luggage. Your response to why would it create such a, narr- a, a, a narrative mm-hmm. of having travelers to travel without that luggage being secure. Your response, Sister Eleanor? Brother Africa, I think it's uh, uh, dangerous. And as Brother Haki said, it is without consideration of the public, of citizens. Imagine people who use medications and uh, need to know that they're secure. Um, uh, This could mean uh, have an incredible impact on travel in that uh, people are no longer free to travel as they wish because they cannot uh, secure their personal items the only items that they would be able to secure, at least uh, keep an eye on, would be the things that they bring aboard with them. And I'm thinking of uh, the sisters with their expensive leather bags and things like this, and they all come with locks on them. What does that mean for them as Travelers, will they not be uh, allowed to travel because they have locks? And uh, I can see it would make older luggage extremely valuable with their lo- the with their locks and their security. Uh, I, I see it as a real invasion of of privacy and another violation of our 
privacy and us advancing in this totalitarian kind of society that we have to absolutely say no to. Thank you, Susanna. Brother Anthony, let's talk about what it means to travel now when your luggage is unsecure. What consequences does uh, that have on a traveler today? Uh, well, there's a risk that someone that uh, uh, you know could get could, could get you in serious trouble by planning stuff in your luggage. In addition to the all the issues that Sister Eleanor raised, uh, you know, just uh, you know, it it, it puts away an increased risk. Of encounters with the police uh, that could be avoided, and uh, and there uh, could be serious implications behind it. The way the police react uh, to Africans that are under suspicion. Uh, so I think it's a, a very dangerous situation. And it poses risk for the uh, for the uh, for the safety of uh, travelers. Thank you, brother Anthony and brother Moses. Your final thoughts on this particular situation, brother Moses? Are you with us, brother Moses? I know why we wait for brother Moses to. Get back connected. What we're going to do right now, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we want y'all to give y'all final thoughts on today's program. Let's talk. This is Africa on the Move. Fight, 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 fight,
wise, Brother Moses, we thank you. Brother Anthony, give us your final thoughts for tonight. Let's talk. Brother Anthony. Sure. We have to uh, get better organized. And we've got to share our experiences with each other. Knowledge is power. The enemy understands this very well. And uh, that's why they engage in acts to keep to try to keep us silent. But we can't let fear stop us. We got to share uh, the, the the truth of our experiences and our history, and join an organization that is working for your people's liberation. One such organization is the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. And you can find out more more about us by visiting our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org. Thank you for having me. We thank you as well, Brother Anthony, for your participation. On today's program, we now will go to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor will remind us again on the D.C. Metro Coalition in support of the Cuban Revolution upcoming event. And your final thoughts. You have one minute, my sister. The mic is yours. Yes, Brother Africa, I want to thank you so much for allowing me to participate in this evening's forum. The D.C. Metro Coalition is hosting a fundraiser on the 21st of October. And we'd like to have everyone come out and join us, all of our comrades to come out and join us and support the Cuban People's Revolution. We'd like also to remind people that right now more than ever, Cuba is in need of of uh, medical supplies, building supplies, and other things of that sort as a result of the recent hurricane. Uh, some 50,000 people lost their homes. And uh, the media did not cover, the in, in the United States, did not cover the impact that the hurricane had on Cuba. And that's an example of uh, misinformation. And we as a world people need to unite, but most importantly, here right now in this United States, we need to stand in solidarity, build a new party, I was thinking of a party that uh, came along in the 60s, and it was a strong party doing great things for people. It was called the Black Panther Party, and it was really about um, children's lunch programs, really about helping the people and engaging the community and focusing on self-reliance. And uh, for 15 years, that party 
thing to flourish and make it. Well, we can do it again. We can do it right now. These brilliant analysts say every week, join a party, get organized. If you join one and 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 if join the group and build from there. And as Brother Moses said, put aside any differences we may perceive or real that we may think we have because they're not what counts. What counts is the masses, is everyone. We need to put aside these small differences and just focus on uh, the important thing. Now, um, there is an upcoming meeting uh, with the coalition this Thursday um, concerning uh, planning for our coming fundraiser. So um, that's something that folks may think about uh, participating in. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, You can contact the coalition. I'm sorry I had the number in my head earlier this evening, and now I cannot uh, uh, think of it. But uh, I hope... uh, Brother Africa, you will share the address on um, Argyle Place and the phone number of the coalition with our listening audience once more so that they will be able to get in contact with us. Of course, the event fundraising event for Cuba will be on Friday, October 21st, 2022, from 7 to 10 p.m. The address is 4221. The street name is spelled A-R-G-Y-I-A, Terrace, Northwest, Washington, D.C. For more information, please dial 202-503-9465, or you can email the DC, you can email DC Metro Coalition for Cuba, all in small caps, at gmail.com. And we're also, host, uh, we're also going to host a meeting on the 13th, a planning meeting for the Africa. And if people also call that same phone number, call the phone number or email if you would like to participate in the planning. Right now, um, we need people that are able to help with the cooking, um, 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 people who are experts in making mojitos, which is uh, a mint, fresh mint and uh, rum cocktail. Um, and uh, it should be a lot of fun, but the planning meeting, there are a lot of details to discuss and work out, and um, I uh, look forward to 
many people participating in both the meeting this Thursday as well as coming out to the fundraiser on the 21st of October. And we want to continue to fight this uh, authoritarianism that we see arising in this country. And we have to remember that more than ever, we need to vote right now to make sure that these authoritarian... What is suck about this? The 20 seconds. Um, that these authoritarian candidates are promoting. The people who believe the election was stolen have won the primary. Make sure that you take an action by voting them from getting into public office. Thank you, Brother Africa. Thank you. Uh, fellow analyst Thank you, for Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, I have a question yes. for you, real quickly. They told me that they have you haven't seen a mic that you don't love. Is that true? <laughs> That's right, Sister. We love you too, much, Sister. We have a nice day. All right, brothers and sisters, we're going to close the silent thoughts out with Brother Haki from the African Awareness Association. We'd like to remind you that, remember, come and join us. Join Africa and the Moon African Awareness Association as they travel to Cuba and feed rat tour, which will, take, which will take place on January 23rd to the 30th. Brother Haki, remind the people again why they should go and then give us your final thoughts for the night. As we wrap up, let's talk. Brother Haki, the mic is yours. Yeah, well. Yeah, well, I think, you know, people should go to Cuba, you know, not only because Cuba's done tremendous things in terms of support of, you know, the southern region of Africa, because what Cuba stands for, Cuba is the epitome in terms of humanity. And, and of course, you know, the biggest struggle in America is trying to create a society which is more humane. Uh, Cuba is doing that. And so, therefore, just to go there and to see for, your hand, for yourself firsthand what Cuba is doing in terms of, you know, um, stimulating humanity. In all its institutions, is a thing of beauty. So we encourage people to go to see for themselves firsthand the greatness, which is Cuba. Uh, my final statement, Brother Africa, uh, you know, one of the things, you know, um, the IMF and World Bank has been very critical of Western states uh, because the central banks are raising interest rates, and it's going to have a very devastating impact on, on the global south. But more importantly, uh, one of the things in terms of what we call the decline of the, uh, of, of the global economy, one of the things Western states have been doing, particularly the United States, is been propping up uh, um, uh, neo-Nazis throughout the world. Uh, the U.S. has spent a great deal of some, great deal of money in terms of propping up, you know, uh, or legitimizing Nazi movements throughout the world. And the problem is that the problem is this: lots of those people who are targeted uh, for whatever reason. Uh, are susceptible to embrace the message. So even in countries where you have a relatively small population of people of color, this this this, this appeal in terms of Nazism uh, is embraced by lots and lots of people. So in that context, what we're talking about, we're talking about people uh, propensity to embrace that which is cultural, not not class, but that which is cultural. In America, we got to understand one thing. You know, always judge people based upon their politics. I don't care what you tell me. You can say anything you want. I observe what you do. I listen to what you say. And if what you do and what you say is inconsistent in terms of real revolution, I'd be damned if I'm going to tell anybody 
that this, these people that you should work with. I'm not going to do that. And that context is the, is, is, is the, is, 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 the reality is, in this very oppressive society, African people must understand, you know, whether they want to understand it or not, that the onus in terms of our survival hinges upon us, not anyone else. I'm not waiting for other people to, to say, hey, listen, you know, you got legitimate concerns, and I support that. I'm not waiting for that. Particularly, and, and, and particularly so when the situation arises in which those so-called people who so-called your 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 your, 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 your so-called support as people are so-called uh, comrades, people who support uh, a more humane society, when those people start embracing cultural issues issues at the expense of class, then it tells me that my particular issue as an African person in society is not not important. I'd be damned if I tell any African person to depend on other people in terms of our survival in society. So politics is, is powerful for me. Politics for me is not negotiable. Either you, you do what you, 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 your practice and what you say is, is consistent in terms of bringing in a different paradigm or you're your BSing. It's very simple for me. And I want to make that very, very clear. So it's not a question in terms of petty politics. It's a question of politics. And if your politics, what you say, what you do is not consistent, I'm going to call you on it. And whether you see that's the vision, the vision, the, uh, see that's the vision, or whether you see it as petty or whatever you see it as, you really don't care. The bottom line is that we're in a very precarious situation in society, and if people are not sincere about bringing a new paradigm, a new, new way of doing things in terms of the system, then for me, I don't have time in terms of being concerned about in terms of, you know, trying to convince them that they should embrace, you know, the African movement, you know, in the society. I'm not concerned about that. Because for me, that's not important. What is quite essential is the African people understand that the situation that we're, we're confronted with is perilous. And if we wait for other people to do for us what we do for ourselves, we're going to be in real trouble in society. And, Brother Africa, I close with that. You have a good night. Brother Hakeem, we thank you very much. You lit the fire, and you brought the heat, and we thank you for it. To our listening audience, this has been Africa on the Move. This has been a program dedicated to those communities that have not been valued, that have been left out of the history books, and those communities that have been robbed of their resources and their wealth. But we're going to overcome all of those shortcomings because we know that through organization, all things are possible. As we close out tonight's program, Let's Talk, we want to remind you a lesson from Brother Malcolm. As he warned us more than over 50 to 60 years ago, when he stated that the media, the most powerful entity on earth, they had the power to make the innocent guilty, and to make the guilty innocent. And that power, because they control the minds of the masses. The press is so powerful in its image-making role, it can make the criminal look like he's the victim and make the victim look like he's the criminal. If you aren't careful, the newspaper will have you hating the people. Brothers and sisters, don't forget that lesson. Until next time, we'll see you next week on Africa on the Move.
Again, we do actually make appeal to you that if you support and listen to Africa on the Move, can you email us a one-line statement stating we support Africa on the Move or we listen to Africa on the Move so we can have direct contact where we can share with you important information that's going on on a daily basis. We want to connect directly with you and know who our listeners and supporters are. So heed the word. Until next time, this is Brother Africa, like always. Let's try to go forward, Avril, and back with another. And if we had, if you had all the money in the world, what would you do with it? We we'll see you next week. <laughs>
Today we'll talk about Africa, once seen by Europe as the antithesis of civilization, the heart of darkness in the words of a certain Joseph Conrad. Centuries later, Africa remains ignored. It makes news for its conflicts, poverty and exoticism. For the longest time, the world saw it as a lost cause. Then one country saw opportunity and thus began a new race for Africa, not very different from the scramble of the 19th century when colonial Britain and France wanted raw materials, slaves and geopolitical influence. Now in the 21st century, global powers are in more or less the same race. China, the United States, India, the European Union, Japan, Israel, Canada, all of these countries are in the race for Africa. And one country is emerging as the clear winner. Hello and welcome to Gravitas Plus. I'm Palki Sharma Upadhyay and this is Africa, a continent of 54 sovereign states, 17% of the world's population, 9.6% of the global oil output, 90% of the world's platinum supply, 90% of the world's cobalt supply, half of the world's gold supply, two-thirds of the world's manganese. 35% of the world's uranium, 75% of the world's coltan, and 54 votes in the United Nations General Assembly. This is what makes Africa so attractive and makes the continent a battleground for global powers. There are numerous fronts, investment and infrastructure, military power, diplomacy, soft power, trade, geopolitics. Every country has its own interest in Africa. In 2016, Israel began its scramble for the continent. Benjamin Netanyahu became the first Israeli Prime Minister to visit Africa in 50 years. What did he want? Votes. In favor of Israel and against Palestine in the United Nations resolutions. Africa and Israel share similar histories, he said. Israel went on to sponsor solar, water and agricultural technologies. In the same year, 2016, Senegal co-sponsored a UN resolution. It condemned the construction of illegal Jewish settlements in the West Bank. What did Israel do? It cancelled the Mashav drip irrigation project. And this is just one example. Here's another one. The European Union has pledged more than $54 billion in sustainable investment for Africa. What does the EU want? Access to the African market of 1.3 billion people. Brussels has negotiated free trade agreements with at least 40 African countries. But does this ensure a balanced two-way trade? It doesn't. And no country has a bigger interest in Africa than China. China is funding one in five infrastructure projects in Africa. It is building every third one. Africa has an infrastructure deficit and China has a signed checkbook. Starting 2005, China has invested at least $2 trillion in Africa. It built 6,200 kilometers of railways, including the continent's longest railway line connecting Ethiopia and Djibouti. Beijing has also built the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa. What does China get in return? A lot. Geopolitical influence to start with. Beijing is selling its culture, its currency. In Guinea-Bissau, exit signs are written in Mandarin. China has established at least 50 Confucius Institutes across 33 countries. Several African countries use Chinese currency. China also gets a strategic overseas base. In 2017, China built its first overseas base at the Horn of Africa, Djibouti to be specific. Djibouti connects the Mediterranean Sea to the Indian Ocean via the Suez Canal. The base has the capacity to accommodate 10,000 troops. China also gets a market to dump its goods. China is Africa's largest trading partner. Chinese trade has increased 
40-fold in the last two decades. At least 10,000 Chinese firms operate in Africa. This is according to a McKinsey study. Africa has resources and China has access. Did you know that a third of China's investments in Africa are in the mining sector? And finally, it gets to debt trap Africa. But here's the thing. China is not the only country investing in this continent. It's not even the biggest. The United States is Africa's largest investor. It accounts for $54 billion of FDI stock. There are 600 American companies operating in South Africa alone. And this, even after the U.S. president called Africa this. For the longest time, Africa was nothing but a war zone for Washington. It has over 7,000 troops deployed in the continent. They are spread across some 13 African countries, including Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Central African Republic, Chad, Democratic Republic of Congo, Kenya, Libya, Mali, Mauritania, Niger, South Sudan, Somalia, and Tunisia. For the U.S., Africa was a continent for counter-terrorism operations. What happened then? Why is the U.S. suddenly interested in Africa? The answer is this. For the U.S., Africa is now a new front to take on China, and Washington is now fighting it out for power and influence. An article on the U.S. State Department website reads, and I quote, Africa is the continent of the future. Thus, we need to make the most of its potential. By 2050, its population will more than double to 2.2 billion people with over 60% under the age of 25. Where is Africa's interest in all of this? Also, what about India? What role does India play in this continent? New Delhi's ties with Africa date back to the time of Mahatma Gandhi. India was part of the Bandung Project of 1955. New Delhi supported Africa's anti-colonial struggles. It supported the liberalization movements in Ghana, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau. India also raised the issue of racism in South Africa. It will be unfair to say, though, that India's newfound interest in Africa has nothing to do with China. In 2018, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi toured key African states just ahead of Chinese President Xi Jinping's visit. In 2018, India decided to open 18 new embassies in Africa. India has defense partnerships with Zambia, Nigeria, Ghana, Ethiopia, Botswana, Uganda, Mozambique and Namibia. New Delhi is currently training African military. Indian company Airtel is a dominant telecom firm in Africa. New Delhi is offering 50,000 scholarships to African students. Despite everything, India is far behind China in the race for Africa. China's Belt and Road Initiative has sealed its hold on Africa. If in the 1900s, Africa was colonized with force, in 2020, it is being trapped by loans. China accounts for 14% of sub-Saharan debt. In Kenya, the volume of Chinese loans is six times that of France, which is the country's second largest creditor. And Sri Lanka can tell you what happens when Chinese loans are not repaid. China is looking to capture Africa. It has a strong diaspora, it is spending big money, it is selling its movies, culture and currency. China extracts raw materials, it manufactures products with them and sells them back to this continent. Does this remind you of something? What did the British do in India? In the 19th century, the rivalry between Britain and France fueled Africa's colonization. In the 21st century, the trade war between the United States and China is hastening the same. Just like the 19th century, there are numerous countries in the scramble for Africa. And just like the 19th century, there is nothing in it for Africa. Gravitas Plus, co-presented by Skoda. Simply clever.